No other book has so profoundly impacted so many lives as the Bible. Welcome to Simply the Bible, the Through the Bible teaching program of Pastor Daryl Zachman of Calvary Chapel, Treasure Valley. Today we examine the righteous laws God gives on Mount Sinai for how he should be worshipped and for his servants. This has something to say to everyone who willingly serves Christ today. We hope you'll join us as Pastor Daryl continues in Exodus chapter 20 on Simply the Bible. As the children of Israel were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, they heard thunderings and the sound of a loud trumpet. They saw smoke ascending from the top like smoke from a furnace, and they felt the mountain quaking. The Lord descended upon the mountain in fire and then spoke in an audible voice the Ten Commandments in the hearing of the people. Can you imagine? When it was over, the people said to Moses, You go speak to the Lord and we will do whatever he says. Therefore, the people stood at a distance, but Moses ascended the mountain where God was. We pick it up in Exodus chapter 20, verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. One of the reasons the Lord appeared to them in this way was to show them that he was altogether different from any god, image, or idol made by man. No person had ever seen God before. Although no one can see his face and live, the Lord revealed enough of himself so that they would not be tempted to form an image and say that it was him. This instruction is an amplification of the first commandment to have no other gods before him. The before does not mean in priority, as though it's okay to have other gods as long as they aren't first before Yahweh. The before means that we are to have no other gods in his presence, period. He is the only God, and we are to love him with all our hearts. This is probably as good a time as any to talk about the law, its purpose, and its relationship to Christians today. For the sake of convenience, we speak of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, the sacrificial dietary and festival laws, and the civil law, meaning the everyday laws that govern the lives of the people. The law, or the Mosaic law, came alongside the covenant that God made with Abraham, but it did not annul it. It was given to Israel to mark them as his chosen people and holy nation. God did not give the law to save anybody because it is impossible to be saved by keeping the law. The law presented a very high standard. In fact, it is perfect and demands perfection. Since no one is perfect and everyone has broken God's law, then nobody can be saved by it. So why did God give the law? For at least four reasons. Number one, to reveal man's sinfulness by showing God's righteousness. Number two, to give Israel a standard for living so that they could inherit the promised land. Number three, to prepare people for receiving Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 3.24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. 
The tutor or schoolmaster, as the Greek word is often translated, was the guardian responsible for the care and discipline of the children until they reached adulthood. So the law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Number four, to illustrate in foreshadows and types the person and work of Christ. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. In the new covenant, we are no longer under the law, but under grace. In Christ, God takes poor sinners like us and saves us. He laid our sins upon Christ who paid for them with his own blood on the cross. And when we believe in Christ, God credits Christ's perfect righteousness to our overdrawn accounts. I am so thankful that I live under grace. I need it. All Ten Commandments comprising the moral law are repeated in the New Testament, except one, the Sabbath law. The Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic covenant that God made with Israel. Paul wrote to the Colossians that they weren't to let anybody judge them regarding Sabbaths, for this was a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Therefore, the moral law reveals to us God's standard of holy living. However, it's not long before we discover that we are all guilty of breaking it, which is the reason why we need Jesus to forgive us and help us in keeping his commandments. If we use the law in this way to point out sin to us, then it helps us to guide us in the way of Christ. It shows us what the righteousness of God really looks like. Verse 24, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. This deals with the ceremonial law and how God was to be worshipped. And wherever they would go, they would build altars of earth where they would offer their burnt offerings and peace offerings. The burnt offering was the offering of consecration where the entire animal would be sacrificed to God. In the peace offering, a portion would go to God and a portion would be eaten by the worshiper. This was also known as the fellowship offering. The pagans offered their sacrifices in every high place. But the Israelites were only to build an altar where the Lord recorded his name. God didn't want there to be offerings just any place. He wanted a central altar. Now, if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. They were also permitted to make an altar of stone, but it could only be made from natural stones without any tools being used on them to shape or engrave them. God didn't want them to be distracted by the beautiful altar. He wanted their focus to be completely on Him. I think there's an application here in how we worship the Lord. Some churches are very beautiful and ornate. Others have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on sound, lights, and comfortable seating. They have large worship teams, and the music is perfect. But do we come away saying, what a beautiful church building, or what a great-sounding worship team, or do we say, what a wonderful Savior? You see, I don't believe there's anything inherently wrong with any of these things I've mentioned. 
but we never want them to distract from the pure worship of God. We never want people to be more impressed with the altar than with Christ who died on the cross, to which the altar points. Verse 26, Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. The priests would wear tunics. When walking up steps, they would have to pull up their tunics, and they ran the risk of people seeing their nakedness below. The Lord did not want there to be anything unclean or inappropriate or even a distraction about his worship. We now come to God's laws for servants or slaves. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this, but God was not instituting slavery. Slavery was already deeply embedded into the culture of that time, but God regulated the practice to give rights to slaves who otherwise would have had none. Chapter 21. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's and he shall go out by himself. As a Hebrew, if you were in a bad financial situation, you could sell yourself as a slave to pay your debts. You would serve for six years, but in the seventh year, you would go free and owe nothing to your master. The way you arrived would be the way you departed. If you came in single, you would leave single. If you came in married, you would leave with the wife that you brought. Now, if your master had given you a wife while you were there, you could leave, but you had to leave your wife and children behind because they were considered the property of your master. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. In this case, you could choose to be a servant for life. You would realize that you have a good thing going. You love your master, you love your wife and your children, and then your master would bring you to the judges who would witness the agreement. He would then also take you to the door or doorpost and pierce your ear with an awl against the doorpost. Fortunately, he wouldn't leave you there. Now, all of this points to Christ, who would become a willing servant of God for life to save us. We are told in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Psalm 40, verse 6 says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. The author of Hebrews tells us that this applies to Christ. 
In other words, he became a willing servant for life. His ears were opened or pierced, and he offered his body for us to do the will of God in dying on the cross for us. And we also may freely offer ourselves to Christ to be his willing bondservants for life. Verse 7, And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he should not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. A Hebrew father could sell his daughter to be a female servant. She would then permanently belong to her master. And if her master married her or gave her to her son to be married, then she would have to be treated as a wife and given food, clothing, and marriage rights in procreation. If she wasn't given these, then she could go free. Now, this all may seem harsh to us, but this brought rights to women who had virtually no rights in that culture. I will tell you personally that the best decision I ever made was to choose to be a willing bondservant of Jesus Christ. Have you made that decision? You've been listening to Simply the Bible, the Through the Bible teaching program of Pastor Daryl Zachman of Calvary Chapel, Treasure Valley. For more information about our church, please visit our website at calvarytv.org. To listen to other episodes, go to 941thevoice.com or check out our iTunes podcast. Next week, we'll begin the book of 2 Kings. We hope you'll join us as we continue through the Word of God on Simply the Bible. Simply the Bible.